Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the Feast of St. Barnabas, Apostle. It comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, and I will read that in the English Standard Version. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. All right. So in terms of the orders of the day, let's talk a little bit about who Barnabas is and then the uniqueness of this feast and what we're celebrating here. Okay. So Barnabas is this prominent member of the early church and companion of St. Paul, basically. And he's uh, called an apostle by Luke in Acts chapter 14. So so that's why he gets that title, apparently, even though he's not one of the twelve. Um, he's, you know, he's also in Acts chapter four. He, so his name is actually Joseph, and Barnabas is a nickname. And then Luke tells us that it means son of encouragement, hmm. even though it doesn't mean son <laughs> of encouragement. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> what, so, what does uh, it mean? I, I think. I think the best construction is it means son of a prophet, but um, it could mean it, it's an Aramaic name that all, that it looks most like it means son of Nebo, which is a Babylonian god. Oh, so that's yeah. a nice name to give to your friend, the apostle, you know, son of <laughs> prophet of Muhammad or something. I mean, it's a it's a strange name. So son, it might they don't know exactly, but but Luke interprets it as son of. Uh, uh, son of the paraclete, so okay. the, the comforter um, of some or encourager or something. And so if it's prophet, it kind of makes sense. Maybe he's, you know, he's a preacher, he's mm-hmm. a prophet, he's a comforter, he's an encourager. Isn't Elisha but, called the son of the prophets? Is he called that? I mean, they're definitely the sons of the prophets, whoever they are, mm-hmm. come up in this, you know, as a group come up. I don't, yeah. I don't they're remember the encouragers of the prophets. <laughs> well, I think the word prophet is maybe what Luke is taking as encourager or, yeah. you know, or exhorter or something, you know? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's kind of fun. I, I mean, he does play, certainly he does play a, a pivotal role as a companion. I mean, he's in, he's in all this, he's in all this Paul stuff, mm-hmm. but then, you know, they do split up over the whole Mark incident and uh, Paul and Barnabas, and then even worse in Galatians chapter two, Barnabas is thrown under the bus by Paul with Peter, 
for distancing himself from the Gentiles when the when the Jews showed up mm. um, and accused of hypocrisy. So, you know, it's it's messy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really messy because he's called an apostle, but he's not an apostle. He's called the son of encouragement. We're told that Barnabas is a nickname that means son of encouragement, even though it doesn't. And then, and then he uh, gets messed up in Peter's, you know, influence in that moment of weakness. So mm-hmm. he's a bit of a messy guy. Yes, but doesn't even still Paul when they split, even though they had a harsh disagreement, doesn't he still like commend Barnabas? Yeah, he. Do, I'm right. And Barnabas, well, Barnabas is the one that brings Paul to Antioch, and mm-hmm. Barnabas is the one that vouches for Paul to the apostles. Yeah, and they, you know, they they take his witness. So he's he's definitely a man of standing that's respected. Yeah, but you know, he's still fallible. Yeah, and well, it's a good thing none of that kind of stuff happens today. <laughs> I know. I I mean, I think you know that's a there is a lot. A, a lot that can be done with that, I think, um, appropriately, uh, you know, just to recognize that, right, our preachers are fallible, and they are they have weaknesses, and so also within the brotherhood, we have divisions, and we can reconcile. I mean, we can, you know, there's nothing new under the sun in that sense. So mm-hmm. even though the fighting can sometimes be fierce or whatever, we d- we do need to remember Right, we don't we don't want to fall into the the traps that they fell into, and the weak they, they are warnings for us. And at the same time, when we do fall into them, then we shouldn't give up hope. We sh- we should seek the way forward. Right. So, what they did then, Paul and Barnabas splitting, going their separate ways, is that a indication of how we also then should handle things, or are we given to seek a different course? Well, I don't that's a good question. I don't I mean, I don't think when they go their separate ways it's sinful. I I, I don't I don't right. think that it's like they're breaking they're breaking they're not breaking fellowship. Right. Um, you know, but, but I think they just need some distance and some time and they just don't agree about the best way to proceed. Mm-hmm. I mean, mainly over this issue of what to do with with Mark, right? But Yeah. Um, you know, they are able so I don't I don't think it's inappropriate what they do, but I mean, the real commendable thing, of course, is that they do come back together, mm-hmm. right? That Barnabas actually, especially with the whole hypocrisy issue, um, you know, that Barnabas does admit his fault in that regard, and and they're restored again. Yeah, and he can be both things. That that's another thing that, and I think you know, we live in such a, we live in such tumultuous, idiotic echo chamber times where. It's like you, you, it's everything, you have to be one thing or another. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, it, it's like, look, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. I mean, even if that, even if the name is weird and we don't know quite what it means, but Luke says that's why, that's what it means. Mm-hmm. And that's what it meant to the apostles. Maybe it was a joke, maybe it was a pun, you know, or a play on something. But, but he, they gave him that name legitimately, and we do see that nickname of the son of encouragement or the son of the paraclete. Mm-hmm. And um, he does, we see him functioning in that way. And it's possible for him to be a sincere, pious, good Christian man that's to be admired and respected. And at the same time, to, you know, to sometimes misbehave. Yeah. <laughs> And and to need to be called back and or or to be wrong about this particular issue, whether it's either because of weakness or ignorance or you know just even 
I mean, worse than, I mean, like in the hypocrisy thing, really sinfulness and pride. Yeah. But so anyway, I think, you know, we, we can, we could yeah. be a little nicer to one another in these things. Yeah. Right? I, I'm, I'm following what you're saying. It seems as though we have this kind of great homogenization of things where everything has to be leveled. Uh, yeah. And we can't make any distinctions anymore. And I have, I had a conversation about this with Stephen Preuss for a, an upcoming, uh, it'll probably be, it'll already be aired by the time this is going, by the time we, you guys listen to this, but about um, the Orthodox Lutheran fathers maintaining the distinction of mortal and venial sins. And mm. the, this is not something that we do in our, in our day and age, you know, we, right. on the one hand, we kind of stick with the one distinction, which is that all sins are condemned by God and fall under His wrath and condemnation. Uh, but we don't we don't take up that other side, which is different sins for different people have a different life in in and of themselves in their own Christian life and and can be more harmful than than others. And so, um, in in our day, like you were saying. It seems like we see things in such black and white terms. Not that I want to live in gray, but we can't see that both of both these things can be true at the same time. Where you have Barnabas who has this kind of blind spot, but everywhere else is is a fine, upstanding Christian apostle, um, and you don't. You don't see Saint Paul condemning the whole person, but just this particular issue. And right. we could use a little more of that distinction between the false doctrine and the person, or the rest of his doctrine and this particular perhaps blind spot. It seems like we paint with a really, really broad brush on these things. Yeah. Well, I like to bring up always the distinction between you know, fundamental doctrines and non-fundamental doctrines, and then primary and secondary fundamental doctrines. <laughs> I mean, you just watch people lose their minds. I mean, they just can't. These are actually very useful distinctions, um, but they require quite a bit of, it's the same kind of thing. It's just like, no, it's mm -hmm. either fundamental or it's not. And if it's not fundamental, it doesn't really matter. None of those statements are true. I mean, yeah. uh, and but there is this, again, that kind of extreme lack of nuance, lack of discipline, lack of precision mm -hmm. that, that is kind of the spirit of the age in many ways, uh, whether it's distinct, any, almost any distinction. It's just 100% or nothing. And Yeah. yeah. Well, so, we encounter this with our, con uh, that I should say the Misery Synod, we encounter this with our confession of close communion, where if, if we don't mm. bar, if we don't allow someone to the table, we're saying that they're not Christian and they're going to hell. And yeah. I think our people kind of hear that with, I mean, not all of them, but but many yeah. still can't make that distinction to say, look, we're saying that they have a false doctrine here and we don't want that little leaven to leaven our whole lump. So we want to make maintain that distinction that we we have a broken fellowship in this regard. And But that doesn't mean that Everyone who is a Methodist is going to hell, right? And and I, what I'm trying to get at is th this kind of thinking comes up so often that yeah. I wonder, 
Like, is that what was taught previously? I mean, when I read Peeper, I don't see that, like, because you've got the fundamental, non-fundamental, and then primary and secondary fundamental doctrines. But was this the the shorthand teaching of this in ages past such that it's so common, or did they always just misunderstand it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, well, how many... Look, every Missouri Synod pastor who's ever lived in the last 40 years has been told by lay people more than once that some Missouri Synod pastor somewhere else taught that only Lutherans go to heaven. Right. I mean, yeah, and and I mean, it's just, this is like, it's, I think it is exactly what you're talking about. They, they, and I just don't believe any Lutheran pastor has ever taught that. Yeah. Ever. It, that's just so un-Lutheran. I mean, yeah. it's just like there's certain, there's some errors we're prone to, antinomianism, hedonism, I don't know, self-righteousness, all sorts of things. But that there's just some things that you just wouldn't find a Lutheran saying. Right. And I mean, you know, somebody that's in any way trained, but they're convinced and they're good, man. I even had one time somebody tell me that uh, when her family mm-hmm. transferred here, to my congregation, which is English District. So that's one of the districts in the Missouri Synod, but absolutely 100% totally Missouri Synod. So they transferred, they moved from one congregation to the other. And her Indiana District pastor said, if you join the English District, you'll go to hell. What? So, and I was like, I'm just like, I'm like so of course me, you know, I just, I, I really, I have such, so many problems. And one of them is, it's really hard for me to just let things go like that. <laughs> which I 100% should have, but I didn't. So, of course, I got into an argument with her, completely futile. No reason. It, there was no reason for me to do that. I mean, yeah. no reasonable reason for me to do that. You but don't yeah. have to pick up every tug of war rope, Dave. No, you don't. You, thank you. I, I need to be reminded <laughs> of this. The, uh, but it but is anyway, difficult yeah. not to, right? Well, it was so it's so, it so outrageous. I'm like, listen, no, there's no way an actual a pastor in the Missouri Synod in the Indiana District would have told you that going to the English District, you you would lose your salvation. I mean, we're we're in fellowship. I mean, we wouldn't say that of so anyway. It was, but yeah, I, so I don't know. I I don't think those things have ever been taught. I, I don't. I think they. I think it is sometimes too. Sometimes too, it's it's they can't deal with the actual argument that we're making, mm-hmm. so they have to assign us a ridiculous position, so that they can reject what we're saying and feel good about it. Oh, so straw man right? type thing. Straw, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was, why didn't I just say that? Yeah, that's right. They they kind of accuse us of a straw man attitude, uh, and then they you know even though that's not our actual position, and then they're just mm-hmm. like, see. Well, of course, they don't even think. They think if you go to the English district, you're going to hell. So yeah. obviously, he's a bad person, and I'm justified to go to the English district. Maybe that pastor actually said something like, "You know, look, the English district is not as strong as the Indiana district. That's a weak congregation. They're not teaching pure doctrine. They got bad practice. I don't think you should go there. You're, you know, it, it will be risky to your faith, mm-hmm. right? He might have said something like that. Yeah. Um, and but you know then it's like this defensiveness comes up in the people in all of us right and then it's like oh you're saying that I'm going to hell no I didn't say that yeah but I mean I've been accused of saying so many outrageous things that I just can't even keep track of them anymore I mean mm-hmm. you know so so in a sense <laughs> then this does of course I have this- said some outrageous things that help <laughs> that there's that part too. <laughs> 
So, but in a sense, then the disagreement between Barnabas and Paul over Mark and how they handle it does kind of forge a way forward for us how to handle these things that that we that we might not abandon fellowship or say someone's going to hell necessarily over a disagreement like this, but we might need for a time to go our separate ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they don't, you know, they're, so the, the issue over Mark and the separation is not a doctrinal division. Right. Really. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is in a sense, right. But, but the question is, how do we deal with, with Mark who abandoned us? Right. Mm -hmm. What, what, and do we, do we, you know, Paul is like, I mean, it is a doctrinal issue because it seems as though maybe Paul is refusing to forgive Mark or mm. to accept kind of the circumstances that caught, right? And uh, Barnabas is being more generous. Now, I mean, who who's at fault? Who knows, right? Maybe right. both of them in a way. But it is more, more of a kind of casuistry question rather than a doctrinal question. Yeah. And when it comes to that sort of stuff, there does need to be more leeway yeah. and, and, and a little bit of... Uh, recognition that the Bible doesn't speak clearly in every instance as to exactly what the best right solution or answer or process is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe we do have to to say, look, I think this is a dumb idea. Well, well I'll tell you. Okay, here you go. This will make s- some people mad. I think preschools are bad, just mm-hmm. period. I think preschools are bad for children. And I think that except, I mean, I understand and I'm sympathetic that some people are in terrible situations, you know, a single mother who's, who, right, who has to deal with the reality that she needs daycare. And if she can get the government to pay for daycare in the form of preschool, right, whatever. There's, there's people that are forced into these situations and we all live in a compromised reality. Gotcha. I'm not, I'm not condemning everyone who has ever sent his kid to preschool, but I'm telling you that preschools are bad for children. I mean, they're not the ideal thing. You know, it's not, you know, the same thing as feeding the kid lead-based paint, but it's bad for him. Mm-hmm. And we know this. We have all kinds of evidence and all kinds of statistics that, right, that ideally children are with their mothers, right, until they're at least whatever, you know. And so so that being said, right, I really think they're bad, Um but we have churches in our fellowship that think preschools are evangelism. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're doing this very deliberately because they say, well, the community needs preschools and we can do a better job than other people and we can preach the gospel and this is a way of serving our neighbors. Correct. That's what they say. And they believe right. it and they're sincere. And, and I think they're, what they're doing is a kind of a mistake, but I'm not, I don't condemn them for that. Mm-hmm. I'm not breaking fellowship with them over that, but I'm not going to support them exactly either. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, it's a similar thing. You know, uh, we homeschool our kids, and you have this divide between um, those who homeschool and those who send them to public school or to a private school. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I might think, I think this is better, but right. I understand that there are different situations, and I will still contend that. I think this is a better option and that you should at least at the very least if pull your kids from public school and if not then you have to be at every single board meeting or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But you have to take more ownership, my point would be, more ownership of your children's education. 
We're no longer yeah. living in a day that that you can trust the you know trust what happens. And right. some people you know hear that and say, oh, you know, pastor thinks or you know Broughton thinks that right. only homeschoolers can stay in the faith, go and, to heaven, yeah, and go to heaven. And I'm like, no, that's not that's not what I'm saying, guys. <laughs> right. So I mean, there there are these casuistry issues where we we do recognize that, it, right? And and we're and we also have to right. People can make different choices. Their their choices are driven. They I mean, there is nothing that isn't spiritual or isn't doctrinal in a sense, right? right? So if if Paul is refusing kind of mercy to Barnabas. He sins in that, and he's yeah. doing that because he has a misunderstanding of the law, right? Mm-hmm. And what if if uh, if Barnabas, I'm sorry, to Mark, and if Barnabas is being sort of overly generous, right, and and Mark is actually unrepentant, then I mean, Mark has a misunderstanding of the gospel or again of the law, whatever. So I mean, it's not like they're not driven by doctrinal things. I don't want. I don't mean that there's nothing at stake in it, or that. Or that it should just be overlooked completely, but I think it's fair to say that we can't really get at it, and they can't even get at it. Yeah, and so they're going to have to just kind of recognize we don't agree. So I'm going to go have a preschool because I think it just has to be done because we can do it better than other people. Mm-hmm. And then the other, and I'm going to say I don't care if you can do it better. I don't want to be involved in it because I think it's bad. Yeah. Right. So, so we split on this, and I don't yeah. think that's divisive of fellowship. Um, yeah. So there's things like that. Sure. So what anyway, are we celebrating? They do come together. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what are we? What are we actually celebrating on the feast of Saint Barnabas, Apostle? And is this why, uh, because of what he did for Mark, is this why Mark's gospel is chosen instead of say Luke and sending out of the seventy-two? Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. I like it. I think that makes total sense. Yeah, I like it. I think you're right. Maybe it's a little bit of a a little bit of a slam on Paul. Well, of course I can't say that. Can't. I mean, this was chosen not by Mark, though. I mean, this is chosen by the church later. Yeah, Never I know, mind. but they recognize this. They, oh, they, you think that? Oh, yeah. No, the church isn't capable of having a slam on Paul unless there was a. I'm not saying that have it's an a slam, but <laughs> that he that they see. You know, it is appropriate. That no, it is. Mark's gospel will be read here since Barnabas stood up for him. I like it. I think that does make sense. Well, let's look at Mark's gospel because it, it's a. Uh, so what is so we, we we've been all this Barnabas stuff and reconciliation and stuff, but the uh, ultimately, I mean, you have the personality and the the history of Barnabas kind of behind this, but really, this is a this is a Sunday about the office of the ministry. Okay. And and the Mark six is a is a ministry text. And by the way, is there a critical textual problem? Did you not read um, at the end of verse eleven that assuredly I say to you it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment? I did not. So that's a text critic thing, huh? It's not in the it's not in the Nestle Allen. Um, Let me look. I'm not look. I don't have the Nestle Allen. I have the received text here. And I don't have I don't have textual critic critical notes. Yeah. Well, okay. it's not in 27 and it, I don't have the notes in front of me cuz I'm I'm just looking at my computer. Yeah, it's no easier. Problem. Okay. Well, there there is apparently there is a bit of a textual thing there. But um, let me check. Um yeah. So I'm looking at the Byzantine text in Greek and it does after the uh as a testimony against them has amen legohimin 
truly I say to you than the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Right, right. So so it it is a textual thing, but I don't have the notes. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know what. Oh, oh, I do see on the King James text at the bottom of the page, it says that that it omits the rest of this. Mm. Yeah, I didn't see, I didn't, I should have just seen that. All right. So anyway, this is a ministry text. The context in Mark, uh, Jesus has just been rejected in Nazareth. And immediately after this text, the sending of the 12, um, Herod's going to arrest John the Baptist and kill him. So it's in a very hostile position, right? Mm -hmm. Or I mean, it's within the midst of hostility. Yeah. Uh, So that's the context in Mark. Um, And then you have, of course, explicitly the calling of the 12, which I just want to point out, of course, includes Judas. And he sends out really six mission teams, right? Two by two, just like Mm -hmm. the animals into the ark. And he gives them authority over demons. And unfortunately, the New King James translates this word as power, which it shouldn't be, I don't think. There's a distinction between power and authority that I think is important. But they're given authority over demons is actually, I think, more significant yeah. uh, because authority is given and it comes from someplace else. They, they don't have this in themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't have the capacity or the ability to defeat demons. Right. But they do have the authority, according to vocation, as authorized by Christ, to actually drive the demons out. Mm-hmm. So it seems, too, that what they do or what they're charged to do is precisely what Jesus has been doing. So they, they've been going with him, and they've yeah. they've seen uh, the authority over unclean spirits and then the, the calling to repentance and to healing the sick. Right. So they're doing That's this, the threefold action. Yeah. yeah, they're doing the very things that that he he has been doing. And then yep. a little later in chapter six, they come back and give an account to him. And I think that's right. important, even though it's not part of the text that's to be read. But you get this, they're given authority to uh, and sent out to continue the activities that characterized what Jesus was doing, uh, namely those threefold actions. And then they, they don't do it alone. Um, and at the end, they're accountable to, for what they've done. And that really right. does summarize what the ministry is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's explicit in in verse 13 that they right, they preach repentance, they cast out demons, called demons at time, and they anoint with oil and the anointing heals. I think we should read that as one action. Yeah. Uh, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Mm-hmm. Not as two different things, but Yeah. Jesus doesn't anoint with oil though. I mean, it's not recorded Jesus ever anointing with oil, but he heals but it's the also, sick. But he heals the sick. It's also not recorded that Jesus baptizes, right? So uh, I, I think, yeah. Well, anyway, I don't know. There might be a connection there. Uh, all right. So they get that. That that's good. Is, that's exactly is, right. Is, they are. Is there any? Um, I mean, in Luke, uh, where he's recording the sending out of the seventy or seventy-two, um, you get all the same things. Uh, but then you get at, in chapter 10, Luke records what the effect of these things that Jesus sees Satan cast out of heaven. And, yeah. Uh, is, there any, is there anything there that we should be 
things are being put back into order. They're being put back into their place. The We're seeing Jesus is telling us what is actually happening when we see people healed and repentance happens, that their mind is changed uh, against what they formerly thought to now what is what ought to be. Right. Well, and that 70 probably includes Barnabas. Yeah. So uh, in, in uh, Luke 10. Yeah. And you also have the, right, he says, I saw late Satan fall in like lightning, which we know, of course, right, is repeated in Revelation. He sees Satan cast out. And then he, but he says, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, which comes up after the resurrection in Mark's gospel. Right. Um, so you do, I think there is a connection. And I, I read, a, oh, where was this? It was a sermon, I think, but um, I can't remember if it was Luther, it was somebody like that. Um, and uh, they were taking this passage, at, uh, whoever it was, he was taking this passage as every time the gospel is preached, Satan is being cast out. And it was a, it was a law gospel uh, application. Mm-hmm. So the way that, that Satan is cast out still today, right? He's, he's being cast out in the preaching of the word, but, but you know, they don't, right? The apostles didn't see Satan being cast out. Right. But, but it was happening, right? They saw some demons being cast out. They saw some people being healed, which we don't see that either, but, but it, was, it was all affected by the word. Mm-hmm. So I've always liked that, and uh, I do too. I that's, that's why. Right. That's why I brought it up. Like we we still have the proclamation of repentance, and can we then surmise that this is still the effect? Right, and well, the the one that's sort of difficult, of course, is the phys- so you have preaching, demon defeating, and physical healing mm-hmm. slash anointing, and. Uh, you know, the, of course, the preaching's straightforward, great. The demon defeating, that's that's easy for us to accept, right? This is happening in a spiritual way that the eyes can't see. But then what about the what about the physical healing? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would like there to be, you know, I mean, you do have that thing in 1 Corinthians 11 about maybe the, the bodily benefits of the sacrament of the altar, suggested right by the bodily detriments of receiving the sacrament without faith yeah um you know is there a physical benefit to the gospel yeah i mean i, I think there I, is I, but how do you test it yeah i don't know i think there is too does it need least, testing yeah. does it need testing well i mean do I you mean, just assert it just assert it just say this is physically good for you yeah yeah, I wonder, especially if you took, if we take the physicality of the brain, right? Because the brain is not, I mean, the brains are, it lives in the real world, or lives in the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these cognitive benefits. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the benefits that, that can be uh, mimicked, you know, with, with non Christian things, meditation, rest, you know, um, intellectual activity. But what we really meant for was the word of God. You know, what does the word of God actually do to our brain? We need a we need some scientist to hook hook p- parishioners up to MRIs during the sermon and see which parts of their brains are flashing. And I don't know if I'd want to do that. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but I mean, that's the sort of thing that they do. 
they, there is a lot of that going on. Right, hook, a, right. hook, a, hook a person up to an MI or whatever. I hook up. I don't even know. Whatever. Somehow we are monitoring brain waves and activities and stuff mm. while something's happening to this person, right? Um, whatever it is, you know, while he's watching a stand-up comedian, while he's listening to Mozart. I'm sorry yeah. for all this ambient noise. It's the children are heading to lunch and uh, I have a classroom right above me and it's the last week of school and they're pretty wound up. So. Okay. Um, I hadn't really heard anything until the squeaking of the desk. It sounded like being yeah, moved. It's got to be about over. I, you know, they're going to lunch. So I think, <laughs> I think we're okay now. But well, anyway, uh, yeah, that physical healing. I'd, I'd like there to be a correspondence. I don't know. I, you know, to me anymore, I, I just, especially after 2020, I'm just tired of putting everything like in terms of, well, let's use the scientific method on this. <laughs> Why don't we just, uh, because, you know, that didn't really happen. And <laughs> why don't we just assert these claims that this is true? And Well, you know, I, I was just more meaning we're not experiencing it, though. I mean, I don't, are, are we experiencing physical, uh, r- physical things from the preaching of the gospel? Whether it's, I mean, I came in and I had a cold and I walk out and I don't, you know, or I mm-hmm. came in and I couldn't walk and now I can. Um, I mean, that's certainly not happening, yeah. at least in my experience. Well, many but we maybe associate this too with, you know, and maybe we will begin to see that as our culture, at least in the United States, becomes more and more pagan, but that these types of healings as well as um, casting out demons occurs in places that are more pagan than Christian that those are accompanying signs to those who preach the gospel in pagan areas as a means by which to offer proof that these people's word actually does something. Yeah, I've, I never like that. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> well, like I mean, that. otherwise, you know. I, no, I, I, I get have, it. I mean, why I don't can't. We have, I'm not... Why don't we have the accompanying signs that is talked about in Mark 16? Maybe because the apostolic, because we have the Bible. Uh, so now that we have the Bible, we don't we don't need the accompanying signs, and we're called to live by faith in a more direct way. Yeah, but I mean, they uh, had the Old Testament, they had the Bible, they did not the the, the fullness in the New Testament. But you know, I mean, unless it it really is after the apostles die, the only signs that they'll be given are the signs of the sign of the the sign of Jonah. Right, and sac the sacraments. Yeah. Right. So we have, but uh, that the only miracles we get in the in the narrow sense of that term, right, are the sacraments themselves and the faith of the people. Those mm-hmm. are the miracle. Right. This is where the Holy Spirit is active and is working through His Word, and it's a miracle when somebody believes the gospel. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I, I anyway, I'm you know I'm anti charismatic and maybe a little bit too much. So it's easy to spiritualize the demon thing mm-hmm. too. Maybe yeah. maybe too easy for me <laughs> to spiritualize it. Yeah. Um well but, yeah. So so he gives them authority over the unclean spirits and then he charges them uh, and this is I'd like to chat about this for a little bit to take yeah. nothing. No bread, no bag, and no <laughs> money in their belts. Wear sandals but not two tunics. So uh <laughs> I mean, if Fritz were on, he'd have something about, you know, well, you only have this, you know, 
two natures of Christ. So you don't, you only need one tunic and no bread because the people will, will supra, supply the bread for the sacrament of the altar. I, I don't know what he would say, but um, do you have a theory on this? Do you have, do you have something that goes along with why yeah, I think our Lord? This, I, I think this is a hundred percent just simply that they cannot be self-sufficient Okay. And and that they are dependent upon God, but not upon miracles. Um, in the you know that not the manna from heaven, the way that, right that there's a comparison to the Exodus. They're being sent out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so Veltz has some nice notes on this, but okay. uh, and, um, but anyway, I think this is all about. He doesn't say this, but I'm going to say this: is it's not just that they're not self sufficient, but that they're they are dependent upon the church. And they have to have the humility. They would much prefer, all of us would prefer to be Mm self-sufficient, right? Um, But instead, they have to humble themselves to live in somebody else's house at somebody else's generosity or Mm -hmm. charity. And that's hard for the ministry. That's hard for fallen men uh, who are in the office of the ministry, right? We all have this fantasy of being independently wealthy so that, you know, we don't have to beg. And not that we're forced into that very often, but you know what I mean. We would rather, you know, it's embarrassing at the voters meeting. It's awkward to talk about the pastor's salary, mm-hmm. right? I mean, just all those sorts of things. So, yeah, the, I think the, that this is... The, the first ahead. thing that came to my mind was, and and you're probably not going to like it, was, um, <laughs> is there something to it in that he didn't want them to take anything so that they had nothing to give but the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of repentance, so that them um, fulfilling some other felt need, like needing money from a beggar or bread from a beggar or an extra tunic, that somehow they thought they added something to this person's conversion. And Jesus says, no, take nothing else because all you're going to take is this. And it's right. going to be God giving the growth. So it kind of works along the same lines that they they need to be entirely sufficient upon and reliant upon God, but just in a different perspective. No, I think that's right. It's the, they don't have any right. They don't have anything to offer the people mm-hmm. except for God's word, and yeah. then they don't have anything. They have no way to be to to live, yeah. <laughs> to survive without without the people's. So it's know, a generosity. Hand. Yeah, it's and it's it, this is life in the church, mm-hmm. right? And of course, I think for them, um, you know, their fear is, well, I'm just going to go preach the gospel. I mean, that's not going to work, <laughs> right? I need to start a preschool. No, I mean, but there's the uh, there's just always that that real to to live by faith, right, on both sides of the equation, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. So I so mean, is this I think- also then a uh, a little bit of a rebuke of how we're always striving to do things, uh, striving in a in a bad sense. I don't mean like yeah. actually laboring and doing the work given to us, but we're always trying to find um, the silver bullet, the life hack, the right. the thing that will make all of this fall into place. And if we could just do this one thing, then it would be be great. Jesus has given us the one thing, and we'll try to do everything but that. Right, right. 
Yeah, we're always. I mean, it's just it's just the flesh always looking for an easier way. I, so mm-hmm. I love this that uh, right that Judas is one of these people. These we know who these people are. These mm-hmm. six mission teams. This is not you know the brightest and the best of Palestine, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. And I mean, we know we know that we know how actually deficient they are in terms of understanding the gospel at this point. I mean. Even at Ascension, right, they're still asking, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, after Pentecost, we're going to have the Barnabas-Peter hypocrisy where they're going to cave to the pressure of the Jews and distance themselves from the Gentiles over food, even yeah. though Peter had the vision, right? I mean, so there, there's an incredible weakness in these men that are sent out, one of whom is, you know, the son of perdition. And and yet out they go. I mean, it's it's. I don't know. I think that's really amazing. Again, that kind of goes along with that Barnabas theme of the fallibility of the men. And yet, God. First of all, God bless these these twelve guys. They do go. <laughs> I mean, they're they're like okay, leave all this stuff behind. Let's see what happens. We'll take the risk, right? I mean, they they do actually go in confidence that Jesus will provide for them and that this will work. Which yeah. you know seems very naive in a way, yeah. um, and uh, and I think also so. I mean, I think there you're exactly right that we're we're thinking well, you know, if we had the right guy there and he was more winsome or he was more eloquent or he was better looking or he could sing nicer or you know he understood people or he had emotional and whatever, right? It's we we we're we're thinking that there is a strategy or a tactic or a technique that can make this work. And that's not to say that, you know, we ought to, that that we shouldn't pay any attention to those things, but we probably should pay a little less attention to them, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to casting blame, Mm -hmm. right. Or giving credit, you know, why is Jason Broughton's church growing Mm -hmm. and all the churches around him are shrinking, you know, and then how can we learn from this and imitate him? Um, You know, this to to put it in a kind of secular terms, I would just say, you know, maybe Jason Broughton just got lucky, you know, Uh, he just landed in the right spot at the right time. He's got the demographic thing. People are moving to Tuscola because it's a growing happening hip place. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) There is a, I know you're very Tuscola. It's the new, it's the new New York city. Right. It is. But, yeah, I, so I think you're anyway. There, there is this kind of actually simplicity and reality that God works through His Word. I've I've told this story before, but I used to I quit doing it. But I used to always ask all the seminary students that I would run into why why they wanted to go into the ministry, and it was interesting. Their, their answers were sort of interesting. Not not a, they weren't actually interesting. That was what was sort of interesting about it. But the um, what I always wanted them to say was that they had this great pastor that, you know, inspired them and encouraged them and that they admired and wanted to emulate. That's what I always, that's what, that's the answer I wanted. Mm-hmm. I almost never got it. Yeah. Almost, almost never. And then, you know, um, a lot of them then even like the, the best student, you know, the guy, the, the guys I thought was the best, which they would be like the answer, the best answer was, I just want to read the Bible all day and talk about God. That's mm-hmm. the best answer. And and then so when I'd get a guy like that, I was like, okay, this guy's on the right path. He's 
he, he understands what this work is and he wants to be involved in it. And, and he's looking at the right. And then I'd be like, who's your pastor? And then I'd think, oh, it's going to be, you know, some great teacher and, you know, profound guy. And then he would tell me, and then he would tell me, oh yeah, I love that guy. And I'd be like, wait a minute, I know that guy. I mean, he's dumber than a box of rocks, you know? <laughs> this guy, I'm like, I, I know this guy. I've seen him in action. I, I know how he conducts a service. I know what his preaching's like. I know that he, you know, doesn't trim his ear hair. I mean, he's a mess. Yeah. And and uh, and I'm like, how in the world did you develop this deep love of theology and, and God's word with that moron? And of course, I mean the answer is obvious, right? It has nothing to do with the moron. And 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 in fact, you know, this kid came to love this because the Holy Spirit works through his word. And that moron uh, is a Christian that God used and the kid's right to love him. Mm -hmm. You know, but I'm looking at this, you know, even though, you know, we're supposedly, I'm Mr. Anti-Church Growth, but, I, but I'm not in my fallen flesh, right? I fall into the exact same idea mm -hmm. that it's about the personality and the skill of the pastor and his cleverness. And no, it isn't. It, it, yeah. it, it, it isn't. I mean, we ought to. It ought to be obvious, based on the history of the church, that 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 isn't what that isn't how the church grows. And you can't simply duplicate success by copying somebody, because God do, God doesn't measure success the way we do. And these things are actually all very diverse in their individuality and peculiarities: mm -hmm. the context, the congregation, the history, the personalities. Right? Yeah. So these two, these twelve guys are not that impressive, yeah. uh, except that they have faith and they move forward with faith, and and Jesus uses them despite their many failings, especially theologically at this point. Sure, and so they are sent out to be reliant upon only and always what God provides. And he says, when you enter a house, this great little bit of tautology, I think, yes. stay there until you depart from there. Um, so he's meaning stay in one house while you're in one locale. Right. Okay. No upgrades, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't no get there and then find a better offer. Yeah. Okay. And if the place will uh, not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, in that first half of 11... Is the receiving you and listening to you two different things, or is it the same thing? Is that an oh, I think exegetical? Yeah, I think that's an exegetical. I mean, I suppose. Are you are you thinking maybe receive could be physically, or yeah, will they will yeah, they invite you in, be. and then will yeah, they yeah. listen to you, um, or or is it really just receiving and listening is the same thing? I think it's the same thing. I think gotcha. if they'll if if they yeah because. If they'll hear you, then they'll feed you, mm -hmm. right? If they reject what you're saying, they're not going to feed you. And if they, or if if they won't feed you, they haven't actually received what you said. Yeah. So are we are we given a similar command? Do we are as pastors or perhaps churches as they're dealing with those who are, however you want to call them, delinquent or not attending. It, does this offer a way forward on how to discern whether someone should remain on the rolls or or not? 
Yeah, I think it does. But I but I will, there is a caveat, right, that I mean, there are some things here that are unique, right? I mean, this is an apostolic commission mm-hmm. and sending, you know, that is peculiar to, in some sense to that, to these 12 men and to that time and place. Um, but but at the same time, I think there's principles that apply that we sh- that ideally, the ministers of the gospel live on the charity of the church by the generosity of the people, mm-hmm. you know, and that the worker's worthy of his wages and so forth. I think this, in a similar way, this shaking off of the dust isn't very interesting. That that is a kind of curse, mm-hmm. right? They're like, hey, I, I don't even want the dirt from this place sticking to me. I want nothing to do with it. But there is a delay of the judgment and. Uh, the purpose of this kind of curse is is to be a warning, right? Um, but also, it is to be a way of uh, letting go, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think one of the hardest things to do is to just is to do that is to say this, right? This person rejects the gospel and therefore rejects Christ, and in so doing, also rejects me. Uh, a lot of times I hear ministers say, he, you know, they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting God. And I'm like, well, they're rejecting both. I mean, your, your personality is wrapped up in this, right? They're, they're rejecting your testimony. So, so anyway, the truth is that happens, and not even Jesus bats a thousand, right? Mm-hmm. So we do need to learn to let go of this and to, and to recognize that that this this we have to we have to commend them to God and hand them over to Him and let Him take care of it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right? They come back. They they don't get a call fire down on these villages. Mm-hmm. It's not their place. But there is a threat, right? And I like the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Mm-hmm. That you know that it'll be more tolerable to be engaged in that kind of activity than to have heard the gospel, rejected it, and treated the evangelists, whether they're ordained or not, badly, yeah. right? Um, so, so there is a consequence for this, mm-hmm. and what you have done, you know, to, to, to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I do think when it comes to, like, delinquent members or, or whatever, right, that, again, you know, there is this, I find so much comfort in the doctrine of election on this <laughs> because it's not my job to save people. Yeah. So I get to go to these villages and I get to preach the gospel and I get to talk about this stuff. And, you know, if I'm not as good at it as I could be, that's too bad. And, you know, there's some accountability there that I need to, to think about. But at the same time, all of the elect are in heaven or will be in heaven. Yeah. And I can't add to that number or detract from it, right? Mm. I cannot drive one of the elect out of the church by my negligence or by my bad behavior or my incompetence. So God will take care of them. And, you know, the the burden is his. And this is true, of course, you know, not just for members or visitors or the others that reject us, but also for our own children and family, neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. That that we have to, we do need to learn to recognize that, right, our Heavenly Father is the true Father and we commend all of this to him and we trust in his goodness and we'll just shake the dust off our feet and walk away. Maybe God will send somebody else there, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'll, you know, a seed that was planted will come to root later, or maybe they'll all go to hell. But we believe God is good and he works all things together for good. 
and we're not going to take on a burden mm -hmm. that doesn't belong to us. And that in fact would be proudful of us to take that burden on. Yeah. And the understanding here is that you would then move on to yeah, you, a different exactly. place. So move on. You, you get this in Acts 18, right? St. Paul is preaching to his own people, and he finally shakes out his garments and says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. <laughs> From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So is there a sense in which, you know, all of us, we think of our inactive roles, the, I mean, the the role of the inactives, the listing of all the inactives as the, the, this is, these are our list to work from, to, to, to bring people back in. It seems like what Jesus is teaching here. And then what we see going on in Paul is that once we would make the decision that they're no longer on the roles, then we would move on uh, to others who were never on the roles. Like that yeah, next city, I, right? So, so this is, this is not a okay. I've handled that, and so my work is done. Now I have new work. Yes, yes, okay. that's right. Yeah, and I think um, I agree with that. I I don't spend, um, I don't carry on the rolls very many delinquent members, mm -hmm. and I don't carry them for very long. Our books are pretty clean, and uh, they're uh, because I just don't see any reason to. I try, you know, but if people don't want to talk to me you know, then they're not members. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, look, if you won't return my phone calls, uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you've, if we try to send you a letter and it gets sent back to us because you've moved and you never even told us, right? And we haven't mm -hmm. seen you in a year. Look, you know, I'm not going to kill myself trying to, to, to get a hold of you. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I don't want to go out searching for the lost sheep, but uh, you know, we, we went out searching. I found him, <laughs> and mm -hmm. he told me go away. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going away. And uh, you know, a lot of times this is very disturbing to the, to our active members because those people are their relatives. Yeah. And um, so I think uh, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's uh, so you know, it's not like it's hard either for them to come back. Right. You know, uh, you know, it's like so. Look, it's a piece of cake. You just show up you know, show up and say, Hey, you know, now when you show up, yeah, I'm going to have a couple questions. Where you been? What are your intentions? But that's about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't make a big rigmarole about this. It's not that difficult. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, would you I just think add them back on or would you ask them to become a member by profession of faith? I just add them back on, but I mean, I, I call on them. So I'm yeah. like, Hey, it's great to see you. You know, it's been a while. And then, you know, and, and then, I mean, this hasn't happened a ton, but then they're like, yeah, I, I know. And, and then it's like, well, you know, we need you to, you know, you need this, you need to keep coming and you need to commit and recommit. And then they, you know, they agree to that. And then I say, well, I want to come see you this week. And then I go and I, you know, I, I mean, I do a little law preaching to them, mm -hmm. uh, of course, but it's mostly encouraging. Hey, this is great. This is what it takes. So no, I don't make them go through a formal process. I just add them back on. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm trying to make it as least embarrassing and as comfortable for them as possible, while at the same time, you know, I'm not going to ignore the reality that you disappeared for a while. Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, I mean, usually there are some extenuating circumstances, you know, like, oh, I got divorced. <laughs> oh, because when you were a member here, you were married, right? Yeah. Or, you know, whatever, you know, something terrible 
you know, has often happened to them. And the truth is they did quit coming on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we had this great, I've tried told this story, but it's so funny to me. Our, our district mission execs, really a, really a nice guy and a very sincere and devout guy, mm-hmm. but he is, he has been very influenced by church growth techniques and stuff and really wants the church to grow and really thinks evangelism will make it grow. Mm-hmm. And because of this, he's picked up this language of the de-churched and the unchurched. Mm. And so he talks about the de-churched, and that would be what you're calling the delinquent members, yeah. right? And the unchurched, right? The people who've never heard the gospel or never been baptized. So mm-hmm. we were at, I don't know if it wasn't him, I think it was the guy before him, but we were at this thing and uh, Chad Troughton, who's in our, our circuit, the, this guy just kept going on and on about the de-churched and the unchurched. And it'd been like, it was the first time we'd really heard those terms. It was a long time ago. And Troughton all of a sudden leans forward and he goes, do you mean the apostate and the heathen? (laughs) 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 It was so funny. I just about died. I mean, but it is, there is something that maybe we need to use more precise language, Mm -hmm. right? Why are we calling them, even this like delinquent language, well, they don't. Well, I mean, de-churched is delinquents, and delinquents is too negative. And you want to up your game, call them apostate. But, yeah. but that is what they are. If they have fallen away, mm-hmm. they are apostate. Yeah. So Jesus gives them their orders, and then it records that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and then they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Is, is it at all interesting? I mean, I find it interesting, but is there anything to it that they go out and proclaim that people should repent and we're not told of anything happening there, but they do cast out demons and they do anoint with oil those who are sick and heal them. So they don't actually record whether people repented. Right. Well, so, presumably some of them don't. Yeah. Because they have this instruction about shaking the dust off their feet. Mm-hmm. And I think we can presume as well that some of them do, yeah, and that they enter into those houses and they stay, right? Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. The focus is uh, that they're told what to do and they do it, and the emphasis is not upon how successful or how disastrous it is. Yeah, you know, there's no discussion either about how they eat or how they pay for things or what they do when their tunic wears out mm-hmm. or if they run into a you know, a bandit on the road and they don't have a staff. None, none of that's, they just go out and they just do what they're told. And that's all we're told. Yeah. But, you know, I think that, I think probably there were bandits that the Holy Spirit protected them from. And there was food that the Holy Spirit provided. I think all of this through means, through the church in, in this mm-hmm. particular context. And that, you know, the word was sometimes received and sometimes wasn't, and they didn't become discouraged. They just kept on doing what they were sent to do, whether it worked or not. Yeah. Was so, that, what were you, what were you thinking? No, I was, uh, I just was thinking that they are given authority over the unclean spirits and they're told to preach repentance and they're not told, we're not told who repents it, pence, but we are told that some demons were cast out and some were healed of their sicknesses, but we're not ever told about that anybody repented. Yeah, that, that anyone comes to faith. Um, well, we are told. Uh, sorry, we are told elsewhere, right? That not every demon comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting too, right? Yeah. Um, 
these come out only by you know prayer and fasting and yeah. uh you know so even that is you know we're not told that there was anybody that they anointed a, and you know the healing didn't take but i wonder if we could i wonder if we could see if we could see failures at all three of these yeah so what are um so what are what theses will you work from or what what kind of theses will you have in terms of thesis statements what um, major argument are you going to try to make from this text for the Feast of St. Barnabas? Um, and do you include that bit from Luke about what Jesus saw when they were doing these things? Mm. Yeah. I mean, you certainly, there, certainly you could, you could have a thesis here that, right, that God's, that, you know, Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession, mm -hmm. that the office of the ministry is for the sake of justifying faith, which is bestowed through preaching. Yeah. And the sacraments. So I mean, you know, the the uh, that here we see a proof text of that article in a sense, mm -hmm. um, and that you know the things that are happening there. I mean, that would be the thesis, and then part of the supporting arguments would be that the things that are happening are not always visible mm -hmm. uh, to our eyes, and also don't always happen. Mm -hmm. That there are people that reject it. And yet at the same time, here's these believers gathered on a Sunday morning, right? Mm -hmm. And and why have they come? Uh, you know, they've come because they've heard the gospel and they want to hear it more, right? Because our churches aren't, this isn't this, they're, they're not sent to go preach in churches. Right. Right. Well, I mean, what we're doing is different in that sense that, I mean, believers who already have heard the gospel are coming to hear. Uh, and yet at the same time, you know, they also are suffering. They need to repent. They're suffering from demons, and they're suffering physical ailments. And they, mm -hmm. and in all of this, they need the power of the gospel, and they need to learn to trust in this. Yeah. So, is there a sense in today that we could apply this that whenever you enter a particular house that is a particular church, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and listen. So, so try not to shake the dust off your feet. <laughs> like, try to stay. Try to stay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that this is an admonition that our ministerium could endure. Um, that it is, it is tempting to leave, and of course, I mean, sometimes it's necessary to leave. Absolutely, whether you're shaking the dust off or not. But you know, long-term pastorates. Are very beneficial. Mm -hmm. One of one of the uh, most telling statistics is that if people who young people in their twenties and thirties who are still in the church, the percentage of them who had the same pastor, the same pastor baptized them, confirmed them, and married them, mm -hmm. the, the chances of them staying in the church are huge compared to to those who had multiple pastors. Wow. Um, so it's really kind of interesting, right? So if you had the same pastor all through your childhood, right through school, um, till you went off, till you graduated, basically, the chances of you staying in the church are way higher. So I mean, th that kind of stuff is interesting, but also, of course, the ability to actually, you know, turn the Titanic, you know, and improve practice and develop a better culture of catechesis and you know, rigor in these mm -hmm. sorts of things, that really takes a long, long time. And, you know, yeah. it takes, uh, yeah. So I think there's, there's, it, it would be worth it. I do think that it seems to me that the trajectory of the ministerium has been towards longer pastorates, though. 
seems like the of the uh, ministerium of the Missouri Synod, you know, the placements I know of candidates has gotten a lot more serious about trying to make a good fit where the guy will stick longer. Mm-hmm. Um, in my day, they just did not care. They just about it felt very much like they just threw your name into a hat and drew names, and that was the way <laughs> the Holy Spirit worked. And you know, and that didn't actually work that well in many times. A guy would stay one year, two years. And and there's uh, another kind of telling statistic on this. I, I'm just repeating stuff I've heard, of course, not like I've read these reports. But uh-huh. the other statistic that logged this is that uh, supposedly in the Missouri Synod, uh, on the statistical average, over a, a pastor's career, he moves ever, ever closer to his mother-in-law. <sighs> So, of course, there's going to be anomalies, but I mean, so the seminary placement stuff, I know, takes that into consideration much more seriously. Uh-huh. Like, you know, if you're, if you're, if the guy's wife is from Boston and you put him in, you know, uh, Oregon, you know, he's, yeah, he needs to be closer to his mother-in-law mm-hmm. because that's going to make, you know, everybody happier. So, so anyway, uh, yeah, I think there there could be something said about long-term pastorates. I think also, you know, uh, we're not mostly preaching to pastors. You know, right. maybe we need to say something to the people about hospitality and, mm. uh, you know, welcoming the pastor. It's pretty tough when you're talking to your own people, but but there could you could talk about hospitality in general and uh, of welcoming people into the community and into your home. Hey, didn't you have an article in the... Uh, LCEF about opening your home. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I mean, didn't write it. I just was interviewed uh, for it. L- Lauren and I just were. Bra- and, you just got bragged about in it. So um, well, uh, along with Heath and Jack Gilbert. So it wasn't just me. Yeah, my three favorite people. <laughs> I've never been in any of their homes. Baloney. No, actually, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been at all of their homes. Actually. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the. Uh, uh, yeah, you could. I mean, there could be something here to talk about the the necessity of the church to take care of the ministry, mm-hmm. and to recognize this as right that they actually have a part and a duty here. And yeah, hospitality in general. I mean, not because ju- it does extend obviously beyond the. I mean, I mean, in this context, it's the apostles that need the hospitality, but w- we do need it beyond that. So. Mm-hmm. That's not a thesis, but I mean that would be a theme that could certainly be done. Sure, you know, oh, back to the back to the Christ-like stuff, right? That the apostles are con- being conformed to Christ in their work and in and and how they're treated. There is also, I think, this idea of you know that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, mm-hmm. and the apostles are are also embodying that. So, what are you going to focus on? Do you have an uh, idea yet? Well, I have an ordination that day, so it's going to be kind of easy, I think, to talk about the the sufficiency of the word and the necessity of preaching in season and out of season, mm-hmm. whether you're rejected or not, and so probably that. Okay, good, good. You Any could, final go, you know, you could, you could. Here, I'll give you a final thought. How's that? It it wouldn't be inappropriate to. To, to, you know, read a Bible dictionary about Barnabas and get all the facts about Barnabas and give a kind of biography of Barnabas from the Bible with commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the thesis would be, but there is, you could, the, the second reading is Acts, which names Barnabas. So, I mean, you could kind of make that your text. But I think this is 
I think this is the sort of occasion where preaching on the person um, rather than an exact text has legitimacy and can be done not just as a kind of catechetical thing that you should know who the people, the characters of the Bible are, but also you should recognize how to exegete their lives and their circumstances, you know, as God's providence and promise to you. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 42, the new song. Um, so, you know, maybe that could be a, yeah. a theme within a theme, you know, the new song goes out and it continues to be sung. Yeah, Veltz had this nice thing about, um, and he he quoted the Isaiah thing, not not that not that chapter, but the uh, how in Isaiah the nations come to Israel, and there is in the Gospels kind of the it's going the other way uh, that you know that's centrifugal, right? That it's 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 expanding outward from Jerusalem, mm, yeah. And of course, we're going to see that at Pentecost. So I, I thought that was a I thought that was a nice tie, and I I mean I was aware of the. The, the gospel going out from Jerusalem, but I had never made that connection to Isaiah of, you know, the mm-hmm. nations coming to Israel, but now Israel goes to them. So um, yeah, there's lots that could be done, of course. Yeah. Good, good. Well, thanks for your time, Dave. And Thank we'll you. pick up next week with Trinity too. All right. 